0: All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucksters? What the ears? I am Mark Maron. This is WTF, WTF, my podcast. Thank you for coming. If you're new here, welcome. If you are uh, been here before, welcome back. If you're leaving right now, see you later, fucker. It's all right. It's okay. I get it. Maybe fast-forwarding up to the interview. Whatever you want to do, it's really okay with me. As I detach more and more from what I think your expectations to be, I uh, I find freedom in that. But nonetheless, today on the show, I have the um, Mike Binder, the comedian, filmmaker, actor, and now uh, author of a... Uh, He's written a new thriller. You know, I, I gotta, I'll I got tell you about Binder. He just wrote a book. He wrote a thriller called Keep Calm. It's available everywhere tomorrow, February 2nd. A thriller. But this guy was a comic, and he's one of the reasons why I actually, not that I started doing comedy, but I love comedy. If that makes, I'll, I'll try to explain that in a, in a minute. Let me see, see if I can get some other business out of the way. Well, as some of you know, uh Louis C.K. did an amazing thing. He he uh he did something that there's a few amazing things about what he's done with his new uh piece of work, Horace and Pete's. This is a downloadable um, piece of uh, what would you even call it? Uh it's definitely not a television show because he has um brought new definition to uh you know what is possible through self-producing and through uh, internet um, distribution. Well, here's what happened. A couple weeks ago, Louie was in town. He was here to uh, for the uh, Television Critics Association thing out in Pasadena. Uh, he was here with Zach. And uh, he came over, and we didn't get on the mics. We just went out, and we had something to eat, and we sat in here and talked for about two hours about this thing he was doing that I had to be sworn to secrecy about. You can go to louieck.net uh, and download Horace and Pete. And it all takes place on one, you know, one or two sets. It's in a bar. But here's the beautiful thing about it. Everybody was running around going, what's Louie going to do now that he's not doing the show? What's he going to do? Well, he sort of compulsively created this very dark but beautiful series that when you watch it, reads like a stage play. It stars Alan Alda, Steve Buscemi, Edie Falco, Jessica Lang, Stephen Wright, Kurt Metzger is fucking genius in it. Fucking Kurt, Nick DiPaolo's there. But he told me about this whole thing where he just self-financed this uh, this project. You know, he got all these amazing talents to work for, for whatever they're working for. He reached out to a bunch of people. He, uh, you know, he, he found out Paul Simon was a fan of his and he, he met with Paul Simon and Paul Simon agreed to do the, the song for it. It was so beautiful. He's sitting here. He's like playing me the theme song of Horse and Peace. He's like, who is that? And I'm like, oh, fuck, I know that voice. And, and it's like fucking Paul Simon Paul Simon. But anyways, we talked for, for like an hour, over an hour about this thing, about how it all came together off mic. And then the fucker, we get up. He's like, oh, we really should have recorded that. Yes, we should have. Because the story of how Louis self-produced and kept secret an incredibly dark, sort of undefinable project. I mean, it's almost like an O'Neill play. It's like a, it's like theater. It's shot on a soundstage, and uh, there's no audience, and it's full of dramatic pauses. It's not, you know, necessarily funny all the time. Alan Alda is doing something that I've never seen him do, and it's all written by Lou, and it's just Louis executing. The louis vision in a completely unfiltered way but in a completely uh structured way like i've never seen him do before and uh, you know it's it's weird what when you have a friend and we are friends who you know is possessed by a certain genius and gets things done so that's the difference between people who accomplish things and and, and people who who get upset about people who accomplish things or who uh, chip away at people who accomplish things. That's what they put their energy into, is uh, people who accomplish things accomplish things. They set their mind to something and they do it. They harness their creativity. They harness their passion. They, they harness their uh, their instincts and they understand their limitations and work within them to create things. And then there are people. There are people out there that, that don't do that but still demand attention, demand to have a voice. What was amazing to me was that Louis just completely just fuck fuck twitter fuck it got off cause you know he understood the vortex of it he understood his own compulsion around it as I do but I can't get out of it just yet <laughs> cause cause you know I'll kick tomorrow but it takes it you know it you really have to make a choice not to be a maggot among maggots you know ferociously feeding on the corpse of culture just the fucking monsters out there it's just like I it, I guess my point is Louis is a fucking doer, and he's inspired, and he's a fucking genius. And it's always amazing to see a genius do what they do on their own terms. And I think if you go watch this Horace and Pete thing, you'll be like, "What the fuck is it?" Doesn't matter. It's uh, it's uh, it's beautiful on a lot of levels. It's something completely unto itself, and it's uh, released completely in its own world. It's something that uh, he is solely responsible for, and nobody else. Uh, got involved with it and it it, it involves an amazing uh, ensemble of talent and an amazing uh, ensemble of what seems to be uh, lighting and camera operators and art deck but it's like it's like nothing you've ever seen before and it just it's it's just louis once again kind of uh breaking the mold shifting the paradigm showing people what they can do if they just let their creativity fucking just let it roll so I'm, this is not a paid plug. This is a friend plug because I got so fucking excited when I was talking to him. Like I was beside myself that he had done this amazing thing, and then I, then I, and then I couldn't say anything about it, which isn't that big a problem. I don't talk to many people, but I couldn't wait for it to be released because how often does somebody do something that nobody knows anything about with that amount of talent and that amount of production? It was just fucking spectacular. Anyways. I loved it it's, uh, it's powerful, it's dark, it's moving it's multi-leveled, it's theater it's fucking theater Louis C.K. now can add playwright, as far as I'm concerned to his uh, long resume, so check that out again, not a sponsored plug friend plug, I wish we would have fucking recorded the stories he told me in making that thing but anyways check that out, Horace and Pete, go to louisck.net Mike Binder Mike Binder Mike Binder's coming I can't like this is one of those people that you know many of you might not know Um, but I was fucking dying to talk to him when I was a kid and I watched the stand-up shows Mike Binder was a young guy almost looked like a kid he had his hair combed over his blonde hair he looked like he was like 20 and he did he was hilarious he was a hilarious comic I still remember the bits you know, a day at Disneyland. And also, like, I, so I remember one thing I saw him do, he grabbed a, a camera from someone in the audience, took a picture of his crotch, and he said, explain that to the guy at the drugstore. And uh, he, he made me want to do comedy mike binder and then when i got to the comedy store he was this mythic guy there like he you know he hadn't been there in years but he was like the golden boy he was like the the you know he was mitzi shore's pick to be the next big comedy star he was at the comedy store when he was 20 i don't know how old he was maybe in his teens 22 way back when the original crew was there he got all fucked up on drugs and pulled out but you know he went on to make uh, pretty amazing movies uh coop de Vil, crossing the bridge indian summer blank man The mind of the married man on HBO was his creation the upside of anger was his movie Uh, rain over me was his movie Um, but he you know he was one of those guys that during the beginning of the independent movie thing he was a guy making writing and making his own movies and now he's writing thrillers but to me he was this young guy who did these who was hilarious so to get the whole story from Mike uh, was really a treat for me so let's go now uh, to my conversation with Mike Binder. I've, o- I've wanted to have you on for a long time because uh, I think, I, if I'm really remembering, I think you were one of the first guys I saw do stand-up on television.
1: Oh, really? Is that possible? Probably, yeah. I mean, I, I started really young. I was on it was television when I was 18 years old. Re- so what year would that have been? jesus that's 74 no 77 77 yeah so i would have
0: been like 14
1: yeah so i was 18 you're only that you're only a few years older than me yeah but i was 18 when i was on the tonight show and merv griffin right and i feel like it was merv griffin yeah i was on that i was on that about seven or eight times you know a day in disneyland that's right yeah (laughs) That's
0: right. And I I know that you I when I talked to you on the phone that you were nervous that I would get hung
1: up on the stand up because it's so long ago. Well, no, it's not that. It's just that you know, the people that are into the comedy store and the comedy right. store scene are so into it and it's like for me it's such a small part of my life right? because you got to I got there when I was 18 and I was gone when I was 26, you know. Right. So, so it was like, out of stand up. Yeah, so it was like it was it was an extended college for me, you know right. what I mean? Yeah. And, and uh, no, I wasn't completely out of. I, I was I was out of the comedy store when I was about twenty six, and I was out of stand up probably when I was about twenty eight or twenty nine. You know, well, it well, just it became one of those things where you know how many things can you do? You know? right. But let's let me just track it. So where'd you grow up? Detroit. In in the city, in the city of Detroit, Seven Mile in Libanoi, yeah. And what was that? What was I lived it? I lived a block from Baker's Keyboard Lounge, which was, which was the world's oldest jazz club. But when I was a kid, I would drive my bike through the alley, and then one day I remember seeing that that the marquee said Comic Lenny Bruce. Come on! And I said to my dad, and I was this was. You know, th- I was, pr- this was probably 63, 64, so I was only five years old, right. you know? Yeah. Six years old. And uh, I said, What is a comic, Lenny Bruce? Yeah. He, he said, That means comic. Yeah. And this guy's name is Lenny Bruce. I go, oh, what is a comic? He said, It's a guy who stands on stage and tells funny jokes. Yeah. And I went, Oh, I want to do that. <laughs> that was and, it. And, yeah, no, my dad told me that story. He said, He goes, Okay, that's what I want to do. Uh huh. And then, um, but Detroit was a great place to grow up. You what know? kind of what was your what was your dad's business? My dad was a builder. Yeah, he was a builder and he was a home builder, and he, he ended up doing very well. You know, he was from poor Russian family, then, and he ended up, you know, working through the the his, generations of Detroit and 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 did very well. His your grandparents were uh, Russian immigrants, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah, Jewish. Yeah, everybody. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: So yeah, I mean that's uh, I I don't know why I assume that, but I always assume that. Yeah. With comedians. Yeah. Okay. It's a and, Jewish thing. And,
1: and you know, the, I mean, nobody in my world or my family was in show business, right? But my parents liked it. I'll tell you, my my there was a thing called the Children's Orthogenic School, which was like for underprivileged uh, kids who who had mental deficiencies. Right. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, and. Uh, my parents became the fundraisers and they would put on a big show every year for the, t- the children's orthogenic school at fort Auditorium, and they would bring in the guests yeah so this was 69 70 68 in yeah. that area and this was in another era of show business because like one year Sonny and Cher were the headliners really yeah and they were they had their own network show variety show and my mom and my dad and I picked them up at the airport. I mean, this wasn't limos and all that. <laughs> and I don't know if that was just Detroit, but right. But they didn't seem... Oh, you're picking us up, you right. know? So we pick them up. And Sonny was from Detroit, so he was really excited to be there. And we, we dropped Cher at the Pontchartrain Hotel, and my mom and her go up because my mom wants to see all her wigs or whatever. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. And my dad and... Sonny and I go to a place called Detroit Coney Lafayette Coney Island downtown Detroit Sonny has to have a Coney which any Detroiter understands it's a a hot dog yeah it's a chili dog with mustard chili and onions and Sonny looks out the window there's construction in the middle of the street downtown Detroit and he gets out and a guy comes out of the sewer and Sonny yells Uncle Davey! <laughs> and Sonny goes in the middle of the street and hugs this guy that just came out of the sewer. It's his uncle. <laughs> and, and so, so I mean, so I was... And we brought in... That's a good Steve story. Lawrence and Edie Gourmet with their opening act was Richard Pryor. Really? And uh, who bombed horribly and said all these, did all these retarded kid jokes that... Oh, really? Oh, no, he got himself in a lot of trouble. You, you saw that? Oh, yeah, I was there. I went to the airport what and were you like 11 back. or 12 that was probably uh, 11 at that time so was he he
0: wasn't quite the, the
1: Richard Pryor no that he was we total know. unknown he, right. was, he was he was an opening act for Steve Lawrence and he did right. and he was felt horrible and he had bombed and we I, drive, I remember driving him in the car with him you know, and uh, but so early on I kind of sensed that people in show business were different and unique and yeah. I liked how important they were to my parents you right. know and and um how many family? How many kids in your family? There were four boys. Yeah, four boys, and then uh, my dad remarried, and I had two stepsisters. So they got divorced. Yeah, my parents got divorced when I was young. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. And did
0: you did you stay in touch with everybody, or did you have good them? I can get any of them?
1: them on the phone right now. I swear, <laughs> it will not be a problem. All my brothers and sisters Are pick you the up oldest? the phone for me. No, I'm the sec. Um, it, in the larger family I'm the third so but in the in in, the, in between my brothers and I am the second
0: so when did you decide to do uh I mean comedy if you started that young
1: oh I was doing I was doing stand-up in high school and and I would go up to Ann Arbor and play clubs uh, called the pretzel bell and the I mean, I, and there was a place called the Delta Lady in Ferndale, Michigan. No comedy clubs yet at this time. No, there were no comedy clubs. I, the fact the first comedy club, the first real comedy club was in Detroit at Mark Ridley's Comedy Castle, which yeah. I'm sure you know of. I, I, I don't know it. No, oh, it's, it's been there forever. It's but that, still there? That was the first. No, listen. In the big cities, there were the showcases. Right. You know... Uh, Catch Rising Catch Star and yeah. the Comedy Store and The Improv and up in New San Francisco you could go up and you can get on at the Holy City, Holy City Zoo. Zoo yeah but there hadn't been places that put through, uh, you know a headline comic right. and really made exist. a night of comedy and, right and we were all all of us channeling Gallagher and Bruce Baum. and we were all on a show called Make Me Laugh right which came out at the perfect time it was a syndicated show and it was. It came out at eleven p.m. at a time when everyone was tired of the news. Yeah, it was right before yeah. the Iranian hostage situation. Yeah, and nobody watched the news for about a year. It was just uh, people. So this there was this eleven o'clock strip show, and it was a big hit. Bobby Vance, right? Bobby Van, Bobby Van, Van, yeah. Bobby Van, and, and so Mark Ridley, this guy in Detroit, had the idea. He called me. He said, "Look." why don't I do a club where, you know, you come in and then I'll have a couple, two locals open for you and it'll be a comedy club, just like the comedy store, only right. not without 15 guys in a night, yeah. you know? And then it there was one in Cleveland, a guy named Dino Vance uh, and a couple, Dino Vince and a couple guys opened the Cleveland Comedy Club and then it started to take off, you know, there was... Uh, Columbus and Pittsburgh, the Pittsburgh Comedy Club, which was managed by a guy named Jimmy Miller, who ended up becoming sure. a huge Dennis's man- brother. Dennis's brother, yeah. And Dennis used to open for me in Columbus at in Cleveland at the Cleveland Comedy Club, which, in fact, that was Dennis's first road gig. When he's opening a prop act? he was a huge prop act, <laughs> and we used to tease him about it. He'd, you know, it would take thirty minutes to set that damn act up, you know, and, I, and then he does it for fifteen minutes. <laughs> And, um, but, but, he, uh, his first road act was opening for me, and then he opened for Coulier for a week, you know? So, when you started doing it when you were like 16 or whatever,
0: you, you, were you doing dinner clubs? You opening for musical
1: acts? No, when I first started, I would go into jazz clubs because right. that's what I read the. Lenny Bruce used to do. Well, so see, I, who
0: were your heroes at that time? Who uh, were you watching? Woody Allen. Right. Woody I wanted to right. be Woody Allen
1: my whole you life. You had that record. You know? I yeah. did too I yeah. did when I was younger. Loved it. The stand-up year The
0: stand-up record is
1: amazing. Yeah, I shot amazing. a moose. I shot a moose. Yeah. And the moose ate the Berkowitzes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. And uh so we uh we would go i would go and i would take a friend jazz of mine clubs. and we would go to a jazz club and we'd say hey I'm a comedian yeah and this was and there were no comedians at this time this right. was in between this is right before Steve Martin took off nationally and it was in between Klein and Carlin and Cosby and stand up comedy had died right it just there were there was it was there was a rumbling of it i didn't know of Oh, I became aware of in New York with the Catch Rising Star, the with improv. the Richard Lewis and the Ed Bluestones yeah. and, and the David Brenner and that. But it, it Ed was, Bluestone, I haven't heard that name yeah, in a while. Yeah. Yeah, and the improv was there right. too. So so I would say, can I go on? And they'd say, yeah, You're a comedian, what the hell is that? Yeah. <laughs> And the audience didn't know how to react to me, you know, and some nights I'd get them and some nights I wouldn't. You were like 17. I was 17. They must have been like, what's this kid doing up here? Yeah, yeah. No, it was fun. And sometimes they'd heckle me. One guy said, you're about as funny as my middle leg, you know. Just
0: (laughs) middle leg. You
1: know, it just like, it was like... And then I'd be downtown Detroit. That's when I when I really started to get funny. Yeah, was when I'd be downtown Detroit playing to all black audiences, and I would go, you know, okay, a little white boy here. To, it's yeah. time for a little white boy to teach you guys what funny is. <laughs> right. And, uh, record scratch. You know. And, <laughs> yeah. And um, but it was good. You know, I ended up getting. I I, I would always go on stage to these all black audiences, and it would be like. You know, we're going to eat you alive, right? It's hard, and I'd always end up get a huge applause a- at the end because they'd go, "He got us," <laughs> you know, and he worked his ass off.
0: That's amazing, yeah. Because it's a, it's it's a di- it's a different type of uh, room. You better show
1: up. You better do the job. Oh yeah, yeah. And and I was able to really just, you know, I was disarm them. It was so different, and and I did a lot of jokes about being downtown Detroit from the suburbs. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know. Uh, But it was fun, and then uh, at a certain point, I just, as soon as I graduated high school, I left. I drove out to California, you know? Yeah. And, and, uh, and, uh, you know, I I ended up at the the comedy store, you know, and I spent, I had... What year was that? Must have just been what? 77.
0: Oh, okay. So she'd been at it for about four years. Yeah. Three or four years, but it was still the original crew. Yeah,
1: they were the old guys. You know, I was like a... I was like the, the the freshman when when Robin Williams, uh, Robin McClurum, <laughs> you know when I first saw him. Really? And he was also from my hometown. So Robin was? Yeah, Birmingham, Michigan. You know, so uh, we had a lot in common, and and he had an, his he didn't always go by Robin Williams. No, at first it was Robin McClurum. That was his real name. Yeah, I never knew that. Yeah, and uh, and, and who else David was David Letterman was around. He was a big bearded guy, and and uh, and George Miller and. And uh, Tom Dreesen and Elaine Boozler and Ed Bluestone. And yeah, that was the crew. Then. Ollie and Joe. I, and I, well, yeah, but Ollie Joe at the time when I first got out here wasn't quite a comedian yet. He was just Ollie Prater. Yeah, and he was the doorman, and he wasn't funny. And one day, one day, he put a cowboy hat on and became Ollie Joe Prater and got funny. You know. <laughs>
0: He was just a door guy. Yeah, he was just a door guy. And I
1: was a door guy. That was my job. Well, that's what, I was a door guy for a year. Yeah. I was there a was door a guy. system in place. My favorite story is I'm sitting, standing in front of the Westwood Comedy Store one night. We had just booked a sit, you know, sat the Saturday show it was packed. Yeah. And a little car pulls up. A little bumbling guy gets out of the passenger seat. He says, There's a table for Neil Israel. His name is The Door and he's drunk out of his mind, and he's just saying what he was told to say. I go, excuse me? He go, There's a table for Neil Israel, and his name is at the door. And I realize it's Ringo Starr, oh and he's drunk God. out of his mind. Right. So we seat him, and he way at the back, this yeah. table with him and Neil Israel and their wives, and he starts to heckle the shit out of David Letterman, right. a young David Letterman, yeah, and Letterman just chews the guy up, chews the guy up, and they, the audience doesn't know that he's ring. It's Ringo Starr. Does David? No, but he finally Ringo tells him, "Davis, Ringo." <laughs> And it goes, Ringo, who? Ringo Starr. And they, they really, it's Ringo Starr. He goes, so you're gonna fuck my career up like you fucked yours up, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and uh, but uh, it was a, it was a great time, you know. Again, I was 18 years old, and and uh, what did they call
0: you? They call you uh, kid
1: comedy. Kid com. You're and kind- then one night I'm there, and Norman Lear comes up to me afterwards. Didn't even know he was there. Yeah. And he said, hey, I want you to call me tomorrow. And it was Norm- Norman Lear at the time was huge, you know. I mean, he was, was Jimmy Walker around then? Yeah, Jimmy Walker was around. He was uh, he was the one guy that was a star. He was the only guy that was a star out of at, at out of that young. Right. Yeah, he was. So when he would come in, it'd be oh my god, and Richard. Then Richard started coming around again. He had been gone for a few years. Uh huh. When I but after I was there about two years, he started coming back. That must
0: have been amazing to yeah, watch.
1: That was great. That yeah, was great. That was really special. Did you ever
0: tell him you saw him when you were a kid? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. And he knew the whole story and he remembered it. Completely. Oh, really? I, yeah, he didn't remember me being in the car. But he remembered the whole night, and and then years later, I I, I has, w- was on this dinner with Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet, and right. they remembered it exactly. They were like, we were so mad at Richie. We were so mad. We we had we we had taken him everywhere, and he just he was horrible that night. And they remember. They, oh, she remembered it. She knew. So I what happened with Norman Lear? Uh, he, he told you to I, call? He had me do a pilot. I did a pilot for him called Apple Pie. It was my first, and I'd only been out in town less than a year, and it was a network show that was very short-lived, And um, but it, it was with Dick Libertini and Rue McClanahan and Jack Guilford and Dabney Coleman. Wow. It was an incredible. And you was, were like 19? I, I was probably not 19 yet, you know?
0: So you're out here in Hollywood and the comedy store is like in its uh, most exciting
1: time probably. Jay Leno's around too, I imagine. Yeah, Jay Leno became like my older brother. He was one of my best friends. I Really? I I there, after about And you were a little out of control, right? Yeah, and that was the problem. You know, Jay was really 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 great guy to me, but we had a parting of the ways. And um but I used to go to his house with him every night after the show, and we'd watch The Tonight Show, and whoever was on yeah. it, and we'd play Risk, and, and they'd get up in the morning, and call him, and come over, and we'd hang out all day. And, right. You know, and I got sick. I was I got very sick as a kid. Uh, um, I was doing a lot of drugs, and I was eating a lot of garbage, and I was away from home, and I got a form of colitis, uh-huh. and Leno took me to the hospital late one night and called my dad. And, you know, I was in the hospital for about three weeks, and he really took care of me And because my, my father couldn't come out at the time. Yeah. And uh, they ended up becoming friends. Hit
0: your dad and Jay?
1: Yeah. Well, they, my dad loved old cars and had some old cars. Uh-huh. So whenever he would come to Detroit, my dad would let Jay drive around these, these vintage cars around uh-huh. for his, his gigs, you know? Yeah. But and they stayed friends till till the day my dad died. You know oh, that's sweet. Yeah, but you didn't stay friends with him. Yeah, I did. I just we had a fallen out of the ways. You know f- over the strike. You know. You were there for that? Yeah, I was there for the strike, and, and I just didn't really understand it, you yeah, know. And because you were like eighteen, yeah, just it didn't make sense to me. It felt like everybody was just really mean to Mitzi, and and they were playing Bud's Club, and he wasn't paying anything either, right? You know, yeah. so I was like, oh, and I at the, I was there all day shooting a movie. The other thing is, I got this role in a CBS movie to play f- Alan Bursky in the Freddie Prinze story.
0: Because <laughs> They couldn't get Bursky to play Bursky.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know That's Brisky was always mad about it, but uh, but I made a mistake, you know. I mean, I, I really Jay was such a good friend to me, to mine, and Tom Treason, and I just one night I just went on. I went, this is stupid. Mitzi talked me into it. And I went on, and I remember going outside, and I could just see Leno was so upset. He goes, they say you went on, but I know you wouldn't do it. I went, no, oh, I did. I went on. I just think the whole thing's stupid.
0: You didn't quite understand it.
1: I, I made a mistake. You yeah. know? I mean, it was dumb. It was probably the worst, the stupidest thing I ever did in my whole career. Was
0: it, was and breaking, it
1: was being a scab. Yeah, and it didn't hurt my career in any way because that wasn't really show business. Right. That's what, what, what people found out either right away or never found out. That the comedy store was not show business. It had nothing to do with show business. I remember years later I was sitting on the set of a movie and someone from the comedy store called me and I just realized... They're not. They're not in the business. This is the. the, the you oh, know, it's the, its own world. You know, but it was stupid of me. But know? how many people? So they. At that and time? I also think you know, at the time, you got to understand. My father, you know, was this kind of entrepreneurial Detroit guy who built himself up from nothing. Who didn't have any sense of the unions. You yeah. Know? I mean, he was not a union guy. You yeah. Know? At the time, in his mind, the unions were destroying Detroit. You right. Know? And. So he was like, I'd call him, and I'd say, Dad, there's this thing, and Jay and Elaine Boozer, they're starting a union, and they don't want. Well, Mitchy's been good to you. I go, I know, I don't know what to do, and I'm shooting the movie. There he goes, just fuck these guys. Yeah, fuck these guys. Yeah, you know, and it was, you know, he it was a mistake because he didn't know what he was talking about, and and I should have listened to Jay, and Jay was like, really good to me. He, yeah, he was really really good to me as a young guy, you know. Yeah, and. Um, I mean, we we stayed friends, and I would go on the Tonight Show when he was on, and you know, we never we never fought, but you could just see in his eyes he was never as warm to me again. You know, it's
0: interesting because like that that sh- a lot of people don't know about that strike, and I talk about the book a lot, you know, the Nodal Sayer book. You know, I'm dying up here.
1: I never saw it, but you know, it's funny. I know that there were, pe- I mean, I, I people have told me what's in it. I was, I thought it was a pretty good book. I was. Uh, what have you heard? I don't know. I I, I just. It's all about that. It's about- I, I was in London shooting Upside of Anger and, and I'd shot like for 18 days and I'd promised him I'd do this interview and I was sitting in Hyde Park for maybe two hours talking to him about a world that I didn't even remember, you know? Yeah. And I, I remember thinking... I, I remember just talking about just the way I'm talking to you about it. Like, at the time it was a big deal but it was only a big deal to us. Nobody... It wasn't like national Com- news. comedy was shut down this week <laughs> yeah, you know yeah uh, day 114 in the comedy shut down no one cared well you it was know? just a,
0: it was just guys trying to get paid and mitzi was insisting that it was a workshop and didn't want to pay
1: yeah and in her defense what it really was and this is the truth although i i do say that it was stupid to cross a picket line of yeah. your peers i wouldn't do that today yeah but it was also fueled on by a lot by the guy, all the people that didn't get spots, right? You know, all the people that it was. It, in her mind, it was a real meritocracy, and the best comedians got the best spots, right? So there were a lot of people that weren't getting good spots and said, "This is bullshit. We got to bring her down." And they came to hate her, you know. Yeah. And, and you know, she said, "I'll pay you guys thirty-five bucks a spot." and that wasn't good enough you right. know they want and and but they were striking from bud's club and bud wasn't paying anything either right. it, it was just the way it was and you know it never bothered me that we weren't getting paid because i felt like it was just high school or just college and we were getting paid we, we were learning yeah. and, and and we were going to get paid up the road and, right. and, and i felt most of the guy you know when let, when the strike started, I spoke to Letterman about it, and he was like, I think it's stupid. I don't think anyone should get paid. This is a showcase. Right. And, and it, you know, and Leno was one of the few guys, Leno and Treason and Elaine Boozler. Elaine Boozler wanted to be Norma Ray. You know, she, it was like a, she was very passionate about it, but her, those three were the only real working comics that wanted to strike. They, Yes, they wanted to do what was right, but what they really a lot of them just wanted to tear her down. A lot right. of them she was a very divisive character. She was she had her favorites and if you weren't one of them, you know, you were she was evil, you know, yeah. which I understand. You know, listen, again, like I say, my thing was it was a great, you know, it was a great place to have gone through. You stay there after a while, it, it means you failed. It doesn't yeah. mean you're succeeding. Yeah, it's a little and, dark. Was and, it dark and, back and, then? Yeah, it was dark. But Jay used to say that to me. He'd say, you know, do you don't understand? The goal is not to get in to the comedy store and be a regular and stay there. The yeah. role, the, the goal is to get the hell out of the comedy store. <laughs> right. You know, and and a lot of these guys didn't see it that way. And I was really lucky. I was very lucky in... The sense that number one make me laugh took me on the road yeah playing the comedy clubs and also opening for big names in comics and musicians yeah 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 never for comics opening but was I would th- open for Kenny Loggins and that was the gig wasn't it yeah 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 because there know?
0: was no comedy club so you get on no, those so concerts be
1: on the road and you know I went on the road with Andy Williams one summer really you know? yeah and you know, I think I, Mitzi used to, used to live in his old house. No, she lived down the street from him. Oh, from Andy Williams. Like two houses away, but uh,
0: but so were that- you, but were you, like part of the family though. I mean, Mitzi really took a liking to you. Yeah, you hang yeah. out at the house. Yeah, and who was she dating? Like Steve Landisberg. Steve Landisberg at the time. Yeah,
1: that's right. And I also took care of Paulie and Peter during the day as one of my first jobs. Did baby babysit? Yeah, but again. When you run into any of the shores, when you run into, they talk about the strike as if it was. You know, I had this guy. I'm not gonna say his name, but he came over to my office and he had wanted to show me old photos and books. And, yeah, and he, we changed history. We were at the apex. Do you realize? I, I just no, we didn't. We didn't. And honestly, I'm sorry, but, but the strike us that time period no it was a it was it was the a pinnacle of american comet oh, no no you know i mean well you know what the one thing is
0: is that the the door deal in the store in the main room still holds oh, so yeah. on a good night
1: you can make a couple hundred bucks yeah 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 that's right <laughs> yeah, it was great and, and and that actually she she had agreed to do that but they still wanted to strike i mean did, did you know labitkin
0: yeah sure and he was like, he was a, a, a an unstable guy anyways, huh?
1: I never saw it like that. I like, never saw it like that. But obviously, when you jump off a hotel building, you're unstable. You know, <laughs> stable guys actually just check into the hotel and go to sleep. You know, the unstable ones jump off the roof. I mean, especially... yeah. Especially when you're jumping off because you're not getting spots at the comedy store. Okay? <laughs> <It's> a problem. <laughs> All right, you know. I mean, and they wanted to turn Lebetkin into a living legend or a, 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 a hero, legend, a, a hero. martyr. But the fact is, I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, you you know, when when you know your homeland is taken over, maybe then you light yourself on fire, and yeah. <laughs> you know. But but when you don't get spots at a local comedy club, it's you know the jumping off a building is a decision you made. To end your life and I'm not going to turn you into any great hero you know because sure. you are you're a little unstable right and uh, but he was a great guy I mean I, I mean I didn't know him well but he was always nice to me yeah. but but I never saw it as I saw it as like why would you do that over the strike <laughs> yeah you know I've always felt that you know when whenever listen I've had some suicide in my family yeah. you know and and the best line when I and there's a great aA line you kill yourself you you five down right, five you years five, you, you, you killed the wrong guy yeah if you kill yourself in the
0: first five years of sobriety you're killing the wrong
1: well, guy. well Steve lebedkin if he had lived four days he would have realized he killed the wrong guy right you know the, that was not that that was not a good reason you know sure unless there was other stuff going on right which we never know you yeah. know when someone kills himself God bless them because you just don't know but so, but but in terms of people were saying he did it to sh- shine a light on the injustice at the comedy store and i was like that's the wrong light yeah yeah you know well yeah it haunted that place forever so you're doing the comedy
0: you you the make me laugh thing happened so now you're getting work you're making a living in show business yeah can you just substantiate some story was there a story where you were on the roof of the comedy store and you pulled a billboard
1: down yeah what was that that was funny. That was uh, <laughs> there was a guy right across the street from the comedy store. Yeah. To, one, of, it was in a different era. I don't think he could do this anyway, But he bought an ad. It was an actor, and he bought a he bought the billboard of himself. You know, Dan Davis, yeah, actor, yeah. And it was him, and he was in his head stuck above the billboard. And we went out in the middle of the night, and we tied a, a rope around his head. <laughs> And we sawed it oh, the the head off just enough so that a good tug it would come off, and yeah. had the rope across the string, and, and and you know had the audience go to the window and. We all pulled the rope and just pulled the guy's head right off. Yeah. It was the billboard just was driving me crazy. I was doing like ten minutes a night on the billboard. fact that a guy. Look at this guy. In and the, the original room, you could see it. Yeah, out of the you could see room, out of the, the window. You know, yeah. and, and everybody waiting in line saw it coming in, so they they knew who Dan Davis. Did. And it was a great piece, and it just built to the point where Harris, Pete, and I rigged, <laughs> rigged, rigged, rigged this thing up, and we pulled this guy's from across the street. Yeah, we were, and Bla- Harris, Blake, Clark, and I, we we. Climbed climbed up during the day and you know thank god one of us didn't fall you know it was crazy but but it was a fun time that was a good performance piece yeah it was great so when did you like because
0: your career is so varied and 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 you know you've had a long one and you've done a lot of amazing things so when what is that moment like where did the cleaning up coincide with
1: not stopping with stopping comedy yeah it did i was playing the clubs and traveling and and when I was about twenty-five, I, I really I was doing a lot of drugs and alcohol. And and <clears throat> did, did you know a comedian named Jesse Aragon?
0: I uh, maybe his picture. Like I knew Harris briefly because I was a doorman in eighty-seven. Like I got there like late. So like yeah, yeah, so a, your generation was, was already long like long, a mythology. Yeah. You know, yeah. like you guys established the mythology of the place, but it still sort of operated that way. And Harris was sort of was sorta of still around. And Blake was still around, but they were, you know, in their forties.
1: Yeah. Well we uh Jesse Aragon. Jesse got was the first guy that got sober in AA and and I was in town and I, I needed some pot or something. Yeah. So I'm sober how'd you do that? And he took me to an AA meeting and I didn't like it. And uh, some guys followed me out and said, what's the problem? <laughs> you yeah. know, And I said, "I said, well, first of all, I'm a Jew and you have your meetings in, in churches. Right. So we'll start from there. <laughs> Second of all, I'm not really sure. I don't want to smoke pot. I just don't want to drink anymore. And do blow. He, I don't know. But the fact is it, it started to work for me. Yeah. I went, started going to these uncle John's men's pancake house luncheons on the west side and guys were funny and and i got sober and you know i just went off the road and and uh i was it was all the other side thing that took me away from comedy was the fact that i was getting acting work and i also wrote uh i had done a special for hbo which really cut my ties completely with the comedy store. I did, a spe- I did a concert in Detroit with me, Dave Coulier, Paul Rodriguez, and Howie Mandel. So it was a, a, a comedy special. It was called the Detroit Comedy Jam. and it, But it was first it was just a live series of concerts we did, which did very well. And you Detroit. produced it? I produced it. I put it all together and, and hosted it. Yeah. And Chris Albrecht was my agent at the time at ICM. Chris Albrecht, who actually started as a
0: doorman at the Improv That's in right. New York, in, in New York, yeah, and went I, on to head HBO.
1: Yeah, but he, first he went on to become a, 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 an agent, a, an agent at ICM, yeah. and handled a lot of comedians. And I brought him back to show him this big show we did, and and he uh, said, "Let's do this as a special." And we uh, we it was an HBO special called the Detroit Comedy Jam, and Mitzi was like I I inve- you're doing that's my shit you're doing I go what guys that, with a microphone I don't know she said, what <laughs> what part is yours it's in Detroit it's yeah. in a concert hall it's, Yeah well it's uh, you shouldn't be a producer you should just be a comedian and let me produce that I oh, said boy. well okay and so apparently she hated me for that for a long time Oh really that yeah. was it Yeah that was it and um
0: that's interesting So isn't. I
1: did this thing called the Detroit Comedy Jam and then I did the guy that bought the specials from HBO at the time and took them to colleges was a guy. Um, I'm bumming I'm bummed that I'm blanking his name because he was such a great guy. But he he also he ran Columbia TriStar Home Video, and he would make little independent movies. And he made Sex Lies and Videotape and oh, yeah. Drugstore Cowboy. Uh-huh. I'm gonna his name's gonna come back to me. I'm just blanking. It was it's one of those brain farts. But anyway, he had sold my special to hbo i wrote a script called uh the bridge yeah which was me and my friends growing up in detroit and in la in, in detroit in in the in the late, early 70s getting into some trouble it was a real coming of age piece and bobby took it to this guy and um he said i'll, I'll if you want to make it for three million dollars i'll let you make this movie and he gave me $3 million through Bobby Newmeyer, the guy who did Sex, Lies, Videotape. Yeah. And we went to Minneapolis, and we kind of recreated my childhood. Yeah. And you wrote the script. I wrote the script, and I directed the movie. It was a little $3 million movie, and Josh Charles was the star. He played me, and Stephen Baldwin was in it, and it became Crossing the Bridge, and Touchstone bought it. Disney bought it. Yeah. And that kind of changed my life in the sense that you know it was a little movie. It didn't make any money. It got great reviews. Right. But it got me going. You know, I, Jeffrey Katzenberg said, what do you want to do next? And I said, I want to do this piece about my childhood at camp up in Canada. Katzenberg and Eisner watched my movie late one night at, at Eisner's house. And said, "This is our childhood, you know. Let's buy this." Oh, right. And they bought it, and they, and then I went into a meeting with them and said, "What do you want to do next?" I said, "I want to do this thing called Indian Summer," and that was a big movie for you. I mean, that, yeah, was, that, a was, that was a big movie. It had amazing cast. Yeah, and, and those it ca- did well. It was like for, you know, it was like the number two or three movie for two weeks in a row, which at the time was a big deal. It was at a time when Touchstone was trying for a lot of singles and doubles, and weren't doing big movies. Right. It was. It was a, it was a program that they quickly discarded yeah but again i made the movie for nine million it made like maybe 30 million or something for that how
0: did you get on your feet with all that stuff around you know directing and 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 producing i mean you just took to it or did you hire good ad's who no you know you I, that? I
1: had i had written this movie called coupe deville mm-hmm. that was the other i skipped that uh, so i was cleaned up stopped doing stand-up did you miss it No, at first i did yeah at first i did but I didn't want to be in the clubs until I felt right, really good stable. And stable. But I was writing, and I, I always, from day one, I was always writing screenplays. I wrote so many of them, and I wrote this script based on a true story in my family about my dad and his two brothers taking a Cadillac down to Florida. And Larry Bresner, who was Robin's manager, yeah. who I knew through Robin, read it and helped me get it made. And he really godfathered my whole career. He really became my mentor and. And he, he really, he got the movie made, you know, a guy named Joe Roth directed it, who ended up becoming right. a big head of the studios. And That was Coupe Deville. That was Coupe Deville. So I had had to produce screenplay. Right. And then I wrote this other one, which was another three guys in a car, we Stephen Baldwin, Jason Gedrick, and Josh Charles, and grown up in Detroit, and it was a really an era, and and I got it made, and and like I said, Katzenberg and Eisner liked it, so they gave me a big deal at Disney, which that and had, you
0: directed that one though. That was I good.
1: directed the second one, uh, it became Crossing the Bridge. It and how did you how did you like learn how to direct? You don't. You just you just bullshit. <laughs> yeah. You just bullshit. You yeah. know. I you mean, get a good ad. I was on the set of the Coupe de Ville, and yeah. I watched Joe Roth, and I thought, if this guy can do it, I can do it. <laughs> right. You know, and. And, and I got a good AD and I got... A, Bobby was a good producer. Yeah. He had, he had worked with first-time directors and he yeah. got me a really great... I mean, my DP, the director of photography, was a guy named Tom Siegel who... Went, who right, the good up, DP. That's important. He became Thomas Newton Siegel. Yeah. And, then, and he became a big-time DP. He's a, he, he is a big-time well, DP. Well,
0: those are the guys that really, like, as a director, I don't know why I was saying AD, but the DP... He's the guy where you go, well, this is what I want. he's like, all right, we can do it from here and from here right. and then we'll do that. Right. One. Okay, that's right. good. That's good.
1: right. So the truth is, you can direct if you admit you don't know what you're doing. Right. And that's what Bobby and Sharon Bialy, my first casting director, who still direct casting every movie I've ever done, they said, don't pretend you know what you're doing. Just ask for help. And so I did. And I just made the movie. And then this Indian summer, I, we went back up to my old summer camp and- you know, and uh, Sam Raimi, who was a kid in my cabin, played, was one of the stars of the movie, and, and it was really, it was just, again, I spent the first few years just recreating my life, you know, in, sure. in sequence. That Sam Raimi was a childhood friend of yours? Oh, yeah. Sam and I were friends when we, since we were little kids. We still are to this day, you know, he's one of my best friends, you He's know? a good director. Yeah, he's
0: a good director. Do you guys talk about that stuff?
1: About what's Directing? yeah we talk about how much more successful he is than I am, how much more money he has <laughs> you know,
0: but you're still friends that's good yeah yeah he's he's a, you
1: know yeah. I, I you know, and he was great in the movie, he, yeah he played a this weirdo uh maintenance guy that we we kind of knew he was aping a guy we knew oh really? he was brilliant he, you know him and Alan Arkin did these incredible physical scenes together and
0: that must've been amazing working with Arkin at you know just second time you know second time out directing and-
1: well I worked with he was in my first movie that that I wrote Coop the DeVille was in Coop Deville? He's in Coop DeVille and he was in Indian Summer he's hilarious man. he's hilarious he's a, he's an incredible guy and um so anyway by that point I had to say okay you know what happened was I got another HBO special out of my special, uh, a one-night stand they wanted me to do, you know? And and I got a gig opening for, I believe, the Pointer Sisters at Caesars Palace. Uh-huh. And at the same time, I was prepping this movie, you know? And and I, I did the one-night stand, and I did Caesars Palace, but there was a, a, a it's funny, and, and the one-night stand, I shot it in, in Chicago, they would do two one-night and one night stands in one night at these little concert clubs. Was it an hour, or a half hour? It was a half hour. Yeah, right. So Ellen DeGeneres did a half hour, and I did a half hour, and I just, I just between that and then I had to go back to Vegas, and then I had to go and prep this movie, and it was too much. It was, I was stressed out, and, yeah. And again, I didn't want to drink, you yeah. know. So I something had to go. So I, I. The last stand up I ever really did, other than a benefit with Jay for Charlie Hill, the last stand up I ever did in my life was Caesar's Palace. You know, I played yeah. Caesar's Palace with the Pointer Sisters, and, and it was good. And I did that one hour, that half hour HBO thing, and I just said, okay, you know, I, I'm not that good at it. You know, I mean, I, I'm basically doing the same act I always was and if i go with the movies i think i have a chance to really you know be creative be creative and do a new thing every year and i made a conscious decision and i was probably 28 or 29 years old at the time and i just i never did it again you know and i i it was such a big part of my life that i thought it was going to be hard to quit you know because it becomes a drug that need to get up every night. Exactly. Did you get up? Did you get up? I'm going up. Can I get up? Yeah. Can, you know, and to the point of years later, I'd go into comedy clubs. Yeah. And I'd be sitting in the back, and the, someone would come up and goes, uh, the owner wants to know if you want to get up. I go, no, no. <laughs> I'd say I'm just. You know, I, do you want to get up? Yeah. You know, and, and I just, it was like, no, I really. It, when when you get far enough away from it. It's alien again to get on stage. So, sure. there, and I'm probably and, terrifying. Well, the other thing that really became great was I would go to see comedy shows, even in that quick time after I quit, and go, Yeah, he's funny. Oh, yeah, oh, I wish I, that's a good joke. I, yeah. And but after a couple of years, I'd be there laughing my ass off with the crowd, and I forgot how great it was love comedy <laughs> right. you get Be- cynical yeah because you know we, you know I remember some of the magician friends I had they, uh, they just watch it and look at how the trick's done you yeah. know and that's what happens you know and I got back into this thing where I'm a great audience member yeah I laugh my ass off at a funny comedian yeah and I got that back oh that's a know? gift there's a you know so you um, know again so by the time I was 30 you know I was making a movie every year yeah and I was I was doing things, and I, I didn't miss it at all, and, and it was also, I guess, really, the only stand-up that I stayed really good friends with was Tim Allen and Dave Goulier, yeah because they were Detroit guys, you know? How's Tim doing? Tim's doing really good. Good. Yeah, we just went down to the opening of the Broad together. Oh, how was that place? Beautiful? It's beautiful, yeah. Eli Broad is my godfather. He is? He's, yeah, he's from Detroit, too, and he's he was my dad's best friend growing up all his whole life, and... And so I know him very well. Yeah. And he's still around? He's still around, yeah. And, and he, this is his collection? Yeah. Is that and the idea? He, he basically gave a billion-dollar gift to the city of Los Angeles. Did he live out here? He lived out here for many years. He still does. And he was friends
0: with your your father growing up? Yeah. And so he's got this. So you knew, you knew a lot of the, the art from his house? Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've known... I've, I tra- I know them very well. I've traveled with them and Yeah. And I mean, they're very they're part of our family, you know. And do you you have kids? Yeah, I do. How many? I have a 21-year-old son and a 22-year-old daughter.
0: Wow. Yeah. From uh, are you married to the same yeah,
1: mom? Same mom. I've been married to the same woman for 28 years. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, congratulations yeah, on that. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's great. I've been sober 31 years that's incredible man and um you know i met her at the bank where the comedy store writes the checks on and i'd come in all messed up and to cash the check cash the check and, you know you know you uh, know can i see the managers bullshit what are you <laughs> bouncing my checks for and then this this 20 year old blonde manager would come over she was so hot yeah but she was such a bitch yeah <laughs> and i used to call her the bitch at the bank yeah you know and and I actually moved to another branch because this woman was so hard on me. Yeah. And I I just had this total crush on her, but she was but I was a screw up. Yeah. I was a screw up. I mean, I, I was all my checks were for ninety dollars to the same person. Right. Figure that out. You know? <laughs> yeah. And Domino's Pizza. Right. That was it. <laughs> yeah. And she would look through these and she go, Mr. Binder, you know, you gotta keep money in your account if you're writing these checks. And she could just see; she knew and yeah, she was. Yeah. And I got sober, and uh, I ran into her at an AA meeting. Uh-huh. And she had been sober a few years longer than me. And and she she just knew me as a deadbeat at the bank. But was, she goes, she, she was like, "I am so glad you got sober." <laughs> and we started dating, and yeah. and I married the bitch at the bank, <laughs> you know. Yeah. yeah, it's sweet. Yeah, it's great. It's great. But like these
0: like the number of movies you made is pretty astounding to me. I mean, you made a lot of movies.
1: And then yeah, you did the series. and a couple of them are good. No, no, I I, no, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I I really had to flounder because I didn't have any training and I didn't really all I knew was Woody Allen and those guys, you know, but you know, it's been a real great experience making movies because it's like having doing in a an hour and then you get it and you you get it done, and then you start over with nothing again every year. You know? Right,
0: but but like the like the directors I've talked to and like the the process of it, it's you know the, you you're all in for a couple of years.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know I it, listen. Some of them take five six years to get made, and some yeah. of them I write a lot of scripts and a lot of them, but but by the time you know you're going to make it, you're in all in for a year. Now, it's a year
0: when you do like I. You wrote uh, you wrote Blank Man.
1: No, I didn't. Blank Man was an aberration. It's the only movie I've ever done that I didn't write. And you just directed it. Yeah, Damon and I were friends from the comedy store, and he used to be so good, didn't he? He still is. Yeah, he still is, man. He's just he's a great stand-up used, comic. When man. I was a
0: doorman there, he would come in and just do this free-form shit.
1: Oh, he was he was brilliant, and and it, it, what happened was after Indian Summer. I had gotten Disney wanted me to do another movie, and it was that weekend. I ran into Damon at the theater; he was there watching the movie. Yeah. and he said, "You want to do this, Blank Man?" And it was like a Batman parody. Yeah, yeah, I remember. And I loved Batman growing up. And Sam had just done Dark Man, which right. you know. And so I said, "Yeah." And my agent Jim Burkus at the time said, "This is going to kill your career," and I said, "It's not my movie." I'm producing a friend's, it's like a producing a friend's album. Yeah. How could, how, why, why am I going to, if it doesn't do well, it's his fault. Right. But, and I said, I, I, we're going to make it funny as hell. He said, it's going to kill you. And Jeff Katzenberg, he had Jeff Katzenberg call me and said, don't do this. Don't do, and I said, look, I want to work with Damon. I gave him a year in my life. It was the best year. Comedy, we got, he, David, Alan Greer and I, we laughed our ass off. We made a movie that tested through the roof that sony thought was going to be a huge hit and damon was really funny in it and it was a really good version of that thing and a batman spoof and um it bombed yeah and i i couldn't get a movie made for three years (laughs) it it killed my career and my agent was i told you so you know
0: (laughs) did he stay your agent yeah And then you come back with the, one of your own movies or no?
1: Yeah, no. Then I made a little, small little movie. I had to kind of reinvent myself. I made this little movie called Sex Monster mm-hmm. with myself as the star and, and, and Meryl Hemingway. I, I made it for $600,000. Yeah. And um, that kind of got me going again. You know? And Did
0: anyone go see it?
1: I don't know if anyone went and saw it, but it. it I don't even think it was released. I think HBO bought it as well. It went up to the Aspen... Uh, Com- yeah, comedy yeah, and arts festival. Right, and yeah. it won best picture, and I won best actor. And Chris Albright said, "You gotta do a show for us," which became Mind of the Married Man. Yeah, I like that. So show. So they bought that movie and they bought the show, and so that's what it. It never really, it never really was in theaters, but it it helped me a lot, and it changed my. You know, it it kind of moved me to another er- direction. And I worked on the show, which to me was just little movies, you know. Yeah. And I had total creative control. And what
0: happened to that? What? How many you did? What? Two, two seasons? seasons. Yeah. With Bobby Slayton. Bobby Slayton was great. In he it. was great in it. Yeah. He still
1: wishes it was going. Slayton. Yeah. He sent me the funniest thing when when it when the show got canceled. He wrote me a note. Binder. Thanks for having me on your show. In retrospect, a little more of me, a little less of you, we'd still be on the air, Slayton. <laughs> <laughs> what happened with that show? I don't know. You know, I mean, the show was a little snake bit from the get-go. You yeah. know, I mean, we aired Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. Okay. I was on the air. We were in New York. We had a, a premiere party September 10th in New York City. In the morning I got up on, 2000, on September yeah. 11th, and I go on, I'm sitting with Diane Sawyer on the air showing clips from the the show that airs tonight Yeah, and she's in the middle of my interview she says excuse me but we're going to break away to a news thing now and it, the news is charles gibson saying that a small planes hit the world trade center
0: you're you know? on the air on a panel yeah. on a show and, be, and good morning they, america before now, they knew what was happening Really, yeah.
1: yeah and uh and yeah they actually still show that interview on the on the anniversaries of uh, oh really for ABC Good Morning America would they take you back and show you and Diane Sawyer you know so the show came out and you know it was one of those things that was supposed to be a male sex in the city and it was very real but a lot of women had problems with it, and a lot of guys had problems with it. You know, yeah, like it, why are you
0: talking about
1: it? Yeah, there was that one. Why I talk about it? And this ain't or the other group was this ain't that ain't me. That ain't, yeah. this is puerile. This is in juvenile. Yeah, and you know, it's like what I learned from that show because we did good work. You yeah. know, it was really good actors, and Bruce Paltrow directed it, and I mean, it was we did good. A married man, white man's sexuality is the third rail of American comedy. In fact, any married man. Yeah. You know, Chris Rock did this thing, I think I love my wife. I went, you're dead. I I ran into him at a premiere of one of my movies. He told me that was the title. I said, change that title and that movie's not going to (laughs) work because- women don't want to see a movie about a married guy that wants to fuck someone other than their wife right and they don't want that you can't go you don't go with in packs with your friends to see that and the wives don't go oh that he just wanted to go see that movie where with the guys all fuck masseuses yeah they don't they whereas we don't guys go okay sex in the city movie you guys all went and you had fun and and the in right. the girls all got laid by studs. That's fine. You, yeah. you th- that's just come home on time. You yeah. know, we don't care. Yeah, but guys would tell me I have to pretend I'm asleep when my wife walks in the room when mine and the Mary's on. Oh, man so, yeah. is on or else we're gonna get in a fight talking about. Do you think that way? Do you you know? So. No shit. So it couldn't go either way. Yeah. So it's it's just not a you know, and just in general, anytime you've tried to do that kind of anyone who does that kind of horny men thing you know so we were you know listen our ratings were really good you know and some people liked us and some people hated us you know and it was also as a time at HBO that they really started getting into star fucking and they really they had want, they had bought some really expensive shows so they didn't have the money to do a third season but they hired me to write it and I went off and did Upside of Anger was that the one with Kevin Costner? Yeah, that did all right. Yeah, it right? did very well. Yeah, I, I really. And you were in it. Yeah, yeah. What, did, we, did you play a sleazy guy? Yeah, I played a sleazy guy with a mustache. Yeah, yeah. That was right. funny. Yeah, that's right. And um, and you know, when I came back, Chris was like, "Okay, maybe we should do a third season." And he hemmed and hawed, and I started this movie with uh, Ben Affleck called Man About Town. And by the time that was done, you know, they take a year. It just, it was too far away. You know, a lot of the actors had series. And so that's what happened. You know, it just, it was one of those shows that either you loved it or you hated it. And the people that hated it were really loud about hating it. Men and women. Yeah. It was a lot of, a lot of our biggest problems were men reviewers. Why don't you you uh,
0: keep your mouth shut?
1: It wasn't (laughs) that. There were a few of those, but there were a lot of these guys that just, you know they don't have that camaraderie with other guys, and they don't sit around and talk about pussy. And yeah, guys don't talk like that. And yeah. this is this is this is just uh, his. Uh, you know, this, these are sick guys. You know, and the truth is, a lot of guys do. Guys would I would be out running. Yeah. And I'd see a guy park a car, he'd pull me over, and he'd run alongside me. And go, dude, you're giving away all the secrets. Right. You know. <laughs> and and I had more guys. You know, tell me that and. And I also found it to be a good Rorschach test. Uh-huh. The people, when, when I would run into a married couple and they watched it and liked it, and there were a lot of them. Yeah. I always knew they had a good marriage. Right. You know? Because yeah. my wife, she didn't understand. She'd go, what, why are people, why do women get so upset? You don't, you think I don't know that he thinks like this? Yeah, 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 yeah. You yeah, don't yeah. think I don't know the way these guys behave when we're not around? Yeah. You know? So, anyway, it was uh, you know. Listen, it should have it should have gone longer, but it was perfect for me because it was time for me to move on again. You know, it was like I say, upside of anger really helped me out a lot. And then I, I made this movie with Ben Affleck, and then I made Rain Over Me with Adam Sandler. That was a nine eleven movie. That was a more or less a nine eleven movie it aftermath. Was, it was like about th- about a story of what happened three years later. And it had to do with the fact that I was there that night and on the streets with people covered with dust and sitting around telling stories on curbs about what they'd seen. And then I came back about a year and a half later with my family and I thought, man, because there were some people that night walking the streets of 2001 that were, you could tell, you just look at them and go, their lives are ruined. They lost somebody. They would just... They were just mumbling yeah down. i was so, in.
0: i lived in astoria then it was devastating of uh, the weeks after with the pictures everywhere it and was the, devastating the smell and that ugh.
1: so about a year and a half later i was there and i thought i wonder there are probably some people still wandering these streets that that night never ended for and i just wrote this piece and i wasn't going to do it with tom Cruise, and javier bardem and tom wanted to do it and javier wanted to do it and whatever happened it ended up adam sandler and don cheeto, which was fine and and we had a great time um making it and it was a very tough movie and we showed it to the surviving families of the groups and yeah they loved it and and um adam was really quite good in it you know And yeah. it, it it you know it, it with anyone else in it it would have been people would say it did really good you know it made yeah. 24 25 million dollars i make my movies small yeah but adam's a uh, 24 25 million dollar adam sandler movie is a bomb you know but it was a different type of movie for him yeah yeah he knew and he knew that but he took it so personally yeah 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 and yeah. um i mean i was just talking to this about somebody because i think he was really good in all those kind of movies he did but because none of them were big box office bomb, bonnet, you know hits yeah hits, he kind of turned back to his
0: you know jack and jill and
1: zardoz and you know whatever that you know and and i think he just said fuck it i'm safe here and this is what my fans want and and i think he could really have been like tom hanks i think he's that's how talented that guy is yeah you know he's really he he really didn't want to go that direction Hmm. and by the time he did he tried a few other things they just didn't they didn't work you know yeah
0: and that so that movie did all right. It was a little heavy. I remember I didn't I didn't see it because it did, I, was, I it, thought it was heavy. It did all right. <laughs> it, did, I, it
1: did all right. But you, the interesting thing about all these movies, and I'm sure not just my movies, but they have these incredible afterlives now. Yeah. So it's almost like a book, and and the 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 audience the theatrical release is just a way to get the publicity out. I mean, I just did this movie Black or White with Kevin Costner, which I think between canada and and america did 25 million dollars at the box office we made it for seven but what's it it's doing so well on netflix and itunes and amazon Uh people are coming up to me all the time talking about that movie so and it'll be around forever you know i got a text last night from some guy said i watched the movie and then we went and ran it upside of anger you know so In the old days, you didn't have that. Right. You know, if the movie didn't work, the movie didn't work. And maybe it would play on HBO late at night or, or, you know, but now the movie comes out and within a month, it's going everywhere around the world and people can watch it on their big screens at home. And I mean, we've made a lot more money on black or white than we made at the box office already in television. Isn't that amazing? You know? Yeah.
0: So that they they have they, the whole paradigm is shifting and, and it just kind of and it didn't it didn't lose money, but it seems like none of your movies they they seem to none do none of all my right. movies
1: ever lose money. Yeah. Because again I made that movie for nine million dollars. Louisiana gave us two million back. Kevin put up most of the money. Kevin and I own that movie. Yeah. You know, he obviously owns a lot more than I do. But we own the movie forever. You yeah. know and and you know it's just a new, you're as you say a paradigm, and believe me, within a blink, within at the most two years, movies will come out same date, same place, everywhere in the world, everywhere you can buy a movie, just like an album. Yeah. You know Beyonce puts out an album, you can buy it anywhere, you want, right, anywhere right, right. in the world yeah. online, but a movie there's still this antiquated distribution where it doesn't come to Canton, Ohio for six months. Yeah. And it doesn't go to to Belgrade. Yeah. And doesn't, you know, to Belfast for three years sometimes. Yeah. And that's, the internet has made the world so small. But you're not hung up on the theater experience? I'm not is, at all. Huh? No, not one bit. I mean, people, I like the idea that eventually a movie will come out in the theater and you can go that opening weekend or for the opening weekend, you can pay a premium and watch it on iTunes yeah. for 49 bucks, right. you know? With the but, family. With the family. Which would be uh, Cheaper, about a night, Yeah, a little bit, know, yeah. And then eventually that price will come down and it'll come out of the theaters, but it, it'll open in the whole world and you can watch it on your iPad or your phone, anywhere, you anywhere anytime, and that's where we're getting to. And for me, I have no... I, honestly, I I can tell you that I've had great experiences in my sitting room with my wife and kids watching movies that are just as good as going out to the theater. Uh And then I like to go to the theater sometime. But it it really has nothing to do with the size of the movie or how... Sure. it, It really is, you know, sometimes...
0: What's your work ethic, man? Because like you, like, you know, I talk to writers and I got my own problems with writing, but it seems like you can't help yourself. I mean, you yeah. know, I, I, I didn't know what we were going to talk about and I knew we were going to talk about movies and comedy, but then you send me a book. You write yeah, a novel.
1: I have a novel coming out February 1st. Is that They've your first gone. novel? Yes, yeah, my first novel. You just can't, you can't stop working. I, no, it's really sad. It's,
0: well, no, it's not. It's, it's a it's a pretty good compulsion to have. It's really funny.
1: Looking. I went to Aspen this weekend for this, com- this Charlie Rose uh, yeah. weekend that he has. And I got, was lucky enough to fly in a private plane on the way back with these people. And I, after about 20 minutes, I said, I'm going to go back and write. And the guy who's a builder said, Yeah, you did that on the way out here. I said, Yeah. He goes, Are you under some heavy deadline? I went, No, I'm a neurotic. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. I have to write every day. Yeah. You do. You know? Yeah. That's a fucking gift. It's a gift. I've, I've really, you know, it's been a great gift for me. It's, first of all, I mean, it's a God-given gift. I, I really, I don't take it for granted. Yeah. And then I always have an idea. Yeah. I, oh, I've never run out of ideas. Well, that's why I like Woody I, Allen. I've always had, I've have so many scripts in the drawer that I finished and I'll do a re- another rewrite. And I write every day. And you like it. I do, I love it. I love it, I write every day. It's a little bit of a torture because... It's like some sometimes it's like a, a shit that won't come out you right. know you just got to squeeze you yeah, know yeah. and it's you got to really work it you know and sometimes they come out like just you know like black or white I had that idea in my head for 8 years it was based on a true story that tangentially affected my life and the fact that uh, w- my wife had this nephew a biracial guy kid named Sean who yeah. We just loved uh, whose mother died and he had a, a, us up in santa monica his family up there and the family down in in uh, south central and i always thought that'd be a great story to tell a uh, you know a little kid and thought do a custody battle which we didn't have and it rolled around in my head for years and then when i went to write it it took three weeks and costner just went okay we're doing it this summer you know and 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 sometimes they come out like that and sometimes it's it's a struggle but i always have an idea i always and i get up every morning you know i get up and i have some quiet time and some prayer and meditation and and i get it together you know and i i spend three to four hours writing and and it's noon yeah you know and then i'm done you know and and um you know, and then I, I you know, I, I put some serious time into masturbation. Sure. Which, every, which yeah. makes sense. You got to keep that. Yeah. Those that's, two things. That's what keeps you young. Ask Ernest <laughs> Borgnine. You know? Yeah. But But um, no, you know, I mean, I have the whole day basically in yeah. business stuff, unless I'm shooting. I don't write when I'm shooting. Do you have a movie in the works now? I do. I'm. I'm actually. Uh, I have two movies in the works. But I. I have this novel coming out called yeah. oh, Keep Calm. And it's a it's, thriller. It's a thriller. And 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 I'm making a movie with Newline, with Chuck Roven and Alex Gartner at Atlas are producing it. And these are the guys that did The Dark Knight. And who's and, that? Who
0: you got signed up for stars?
1: Well, we're we're just putting it together now. Uh-huh. So I don't want to say. It sounds like a big movie. It is a big movie. It's like a sixty million dollar action film. Holy and shit. So it's different for that's me. That's the biggest movie you've done, huh? Yeah, yeah. It's big. And But it's also, the book is a real departure for me. The book is, it's an American who's at number 10 Downing Street and a bomb goes off and he's framed for it and he realizes right away, once it goes off, that's why I was invited. Because he's got a past that yeah. would say, they're going to blame. make him a suspect. They're blaming right. on me and now before tonight, by the end of the night, they're going to kill me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. They're gonna, and then it's just going to be this guy, this nut did it. Right. And so it's him trying to figure out how to stay alive while a young inspector in SO-16, which is the anti-terror, yeah. this young girl is chasing him across England because she knows he didn't do it. And she knows there's something behind it. So you could get a real action guy for this. Oh yeah, yeah, I will. And and and, and the 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 young woman, Inspector Steele, is a great character. Which it's going to be uh, a trilogy. I've already got the th- all three stories. It's the newborn identity. Yeah, and the girl. It be- So the guy's be- going to
0: run for three. Uh... No,
1: no, no, no. He doesn't run for three years. He, oh. he gets a, he gets to sit down for a minute. Okay, but uh, but yeah, it's and so I'm working on that, and you know, I just I'm just really lucky, like you say, I've always got. The next thing coming out, and uh, I just wrote a script for Reese Witherspoon, based on a book that she loved called Napkin Notes.
0: Now she reached out to you. I think she did. Yeah, it's amazing to me because, like, the reason like I like to talk about about comedy and just about your place in my mind is that you know you you lock people in, and I think that's sort of the the fear of of staying in comedy on one level, and also how you're perceived. Right. And you know, I talked to a lot of guys that you know started. In comedy, but it's it's rare. You're rare that you know went on to do this you know, all these amazing things, and I and I don't think I think I think you have to attach some of it to the introduction into show business is through comedy. That's right. You yeah, know, I it's sort of so. interesting how everyone's going to do their career and now how they're going to make the break. You know,
1: I think so. You know, I mean, and by the same token, I just I've just it's been an evolving journey for me that I I would like to now I actually. I really like writing novels. You know, I'd like to create some television shows. I'm working on uh, Ray Donovan now, you know, and- As what? As a writer. Uh-huh. And um, I'd like to get into that world a You'll little bit. You'll still do
0: staff writing? Or you're doing, you know, you, 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 you're you on staff over there? Yeah.
1: Wow. Yeah. I've never done it, but I'm doing it. Yeah. And um, I did it for about eight weeks on uh, one of Chuck Lorre's sitcoms and realized- I had to get the hell out real fast which one (laughs) mom (laughs) yeah I mean the writers were brilliant but you know that whole Chuck Lorre world is a piece of work well do you like writing comedy no right no I didn't like I didn't like that but they were geniuses yeah they were were incredible and and um, and, uh, so when they called me about Ray Donovan I was first like oh I already tried this but I love the show and and I thought okay this is a little bit more in the type of show I would create if I did a show right but, but, you know, so I just see it as evolving to the books and the and, the, and more movies. And, you know, eventually, you know, I, I just, I don't want to stay at one place. And it might have, I probably would have been more successful if I just did one thing over and over again. With Maybe. One kind of movie or whatever. But by the same token, you know, it's really hard for me to do something unless I love it. Yeah. You know, I'm sure you understand that. Yeah, it's a know. horrible thing to be part of, to be have to do something. Well it's not why we signed up for this. Also, and when I'm looking at you, you know, you've created this whole world for yourself and yeah. you've created your show and you do your stand up and you just do your own shit. Yeah. And for me, I'm better off just doing my own shit. Right. You know? Yeah. And and so it just makes sense. But I can't do it unless it's like, okay, yeah i i i'm really into this i'm right. really into this you right
0: know? yeah and and but do you ever get to that point though where you've gotten yourself into something and you, you're just overwhelmed like it, it sounded to me like when you had to let go of comedy there's that time where you just you just stretch too thin and yeah. you, you just
1: gotta you gotta pick it there's only so much bandwidth i yeah, don't care I who you right. are that's i don't right. care who you are and and that's why i think guys like woody allen have been really smart and you know, it's always funny. I'm friends with Albert Brooks. You yeah, know? we we go. Well, tell him for, to come on the show go, already, will you? He's never coming on the show. All right, but we go for walks. I'm I, no offense, but he just he, he doesn't like to talk about himself. Yeah, yeah, you know, he we go for walks in the neighborhood. And he's very smart. You know, yeah. I say, why aren't you doing another Albert Brooks movie and Netflix Amazon, anyone would let you make a movie. I'm um, concentrating on the acting thing. Yeah. I, you know he understands he's only got so much bandwidth you right. know? and, and um, I've come to those places in my life and, and uh, I, one of the things that I've been good at is when you, I get a green light and I start a movie that's all I work on right. for, for the duration of the movie you know when I get back and I'm in the editing room I'm writing something else but while I'm making the movie, while I'm shooting it, while I'm casting it, you know, it, it, that's what I do, you know. So yeah. you have to you have to really put blinders on, yep. you know. Yep. Well, you're making a good living in show business. Yeah. I mean, I'm lucky. Yeah. I'm, I'm lucky. I mean, I will tell you also that I had almost five years where I didn't make a dollar in show business in the middle of my... After Blank Man? No, no. I had three years then. And then I got on a roll. But after after Rain Over Me, I didn't make a movie for five years. What'd you do? Wrote? Did you think about going back to comedy? I did a lot? No. I opened (laughs) up a hot dog joint on Sunset Boulevard. You did? I did that. That was fun. (laughs) But then that was fun. Did it stay open? No. It was open for a couple of years. Detroit style? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Next to the whiskey go it was called Coney Dog. oh, yeah, but but then I realized that this isn't just me hiding, you know, yeah, and, and um, so it was voluntary. You didn't do the movie. you didn't no, work? no, it was a combination of every time I would get a movie together, the financing would fall apart. Uh-huh. the The world changed for it was the strike came. so yeah. I, I used to make a lot of money writing scripts for other people. Uh-huh. like I wrote a movie for Julia Roberts, and I wrote for Bob Zemeckis, and that went away. And the kind of movies that I made, dramedies, there was no market for them for a while, whereas they're still hard, but at least now, you know, you make a movie for 7 to $10 million with a movie star, and it's you know that Netflix or Amazon or HBO or Showtime or someone is going to buy that thing. You're never going to lose money It's on like a it. buffer. But there was four or five years where that buffer wasn't there the yeah. DVD went away right right the DV you know when I did upside of anger that movie might have made 25 million dollars at the box office but it probably made 70 million in DVD right because every guy or woman, you know, Joan Allen, Kevin Costner, yeah, I saw that movie, I could buy it for $19 yeah. and, and watch it forever or have it in my living room. Right. And it was at every store and everything, and it sold like crazy. Yeah. But that went away. Right. So until the Netflix and the and the Amazon and the iTunes came, picked up again, there was no second. Right. Right. Market for my kind of movies. So, did you get depressed? Oh, yeah, I'd get depressed. Uh, it was a very dark period in my life, but you know, without you know, booze, yeah. no, no, but without you know, I mean, I I was lucky because I'm sober and I really have a very strong faith in God, very yeah. strong faith. And and it, you know, I thought this is a time in my life, and I was 50 years old, yeah, I thought this is either gonna kill me, or I'm gonna start having an affair. Or I'm going to start drinking again, or I'm going to gain forty pounds, or I'm going to go somewhere and run away. Yeah. Or I'm going to just stay here and figure it out and keep writing every day, and kind of turn inward and really find out who I am. Not to say it was just some brave, you know, I wasn't, you know, but you really find out who you are during tough times. And I remember a couple of the young guys or younger guys that I work with in AA they'd say, man, I don't know what I would have done if I, if I couldn't, if I went broke. Because I, I lost, a, I built a mansion, I lost it. I, I mean, I, I lost so much uh-huh. uh, property-wise, physical-wise. Yeah. But I gained so much because yeah. I really learned that I was okay with nothing as long as I was writing and as long as I was a really good guy. and Kept I, your I, family together. Kept my family together, you know, I had... Picked up a lot of AA commitments. Yeah, I had a meeting that I ran, and and I was the doorman or the chi- or the greeter or the yeah. chip guy. So I had to be at a meeting every day, and and I really kind of I'd spent a life where where my career and how successful I was was the most important thing, and I was forced to for five years. Just how good a guy I was each day that became the most important thing. Wow, and. I had a sense that it was going to swing back for me. I really did. I really had a sense that it would swing back and I'd have an even more successful period in my life if I didn't melt down during this period, you know? Yeah. And it was really hard. Five years is a long time. Yeah. Especially when from the time I was 18 on. I always did something. I always had a show, a movie, or this or that going every year. Yeah. You know, I I wasn't as successful as Woody Allen, but I had the same life as him. I was constantly casting, shooting, editing, going, Uh and then it just went away, you know? But uh, I look at it now as a really, it was as what I needed more than anything because I think the work, not that the work is deeper because I think that's a cliche, but... The work is clearer. You right. Know, what I, you know, if I'm writing a thriller, I know exactly what, I, what I'm writing. And I, I kind of, my a lot of the reviews and the stuff that I could take some constructive criticism was that some of my movies didn't know what they wanted to be, you know?
0: And now you're clear on that. And I bet you're clear on who your friends are, too.
1: Yeah, That's so true. That's really true. I mean... You know, my best friends, are one's a dentist and one's a home builder, you yeah. know? I mean, you really realize that the guys in the business, they can't help but be affected by the price of your stock. And you don't want them to be, but they are, you yeah.
0: know? Yeah, and the funny thing is, is like I said at the beginning, you know, I thought you were fucking hilarious. Oh, thanks. And and it was like, you know, like I can still remember. You had such a, as a stand-up, you had such a confidence and such a like, there was something you know completely uh, fresh and like you know it was, just, it was just yeah that's what I
1: had I had I had a poise that my talent didn't quite get to know you uh-huh. know I mean I just was I was comfortable on stage yeah. because I wanted to be on there so bad as a yeah. young guy and yeah and um, and especially when I was sober I I, I really had looked like a a fifty year old in a in a eighteen year old's body doing a real polished act. But it wasn't it wasn't fresh. It wasn't there was not there was no there was no, right. there was no you, unique you, point of view to right, it. Right, It was just me doing jokes. jokes yeah. You know, and and as soon as I realized that I said, Okay, it's time to bring right. this up. But but, <laughs>
0: but just in terms of my personal life, I think that you were one of the guys I saw and I'm like, you know, people do this. You can do this. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And I appreciate that.
1: Well I remember when I started, and my dad would say, "You really going to be a comedian?" Yeah, and I'd say, "Look, Dad, let me do, let me just show you something." And I showed him, like, uh, Billy Braver on the Tonight Show. I do you had know him Billy Braver? I had him in here. Oh yeah, okay. I mean, I said <laughs> with this his lunchbox. I saw. Him, yeah, I said, "This guy, you've never heard of him, but he's making a living." Yeah, and then I showed him Tom Dreesen. I yeah. said this guy goes out. There are hundreds and hundreds of guys around this country that are making, doing great as comedians. It's you, you think because you don't know of them that I'm going into this horrible business. But you're wrong. Yeah. You know?
0: Did so. he finally believe you? He did. Yeah.
1: Yeah. My dad came to love comedians. He opened up a comedy club in Fort Myers, Florida. He did? Yeah. Called the Bijou Comedy Club. And. He really, he, as an old, when he was retired, you know, he, he, he financed it. Put it this way, uh-huh. you know, and, and and all the guys Seinfeld and Tim Allen and so many guys came and played. And, and my, he was a great. Out of respect guy. for you. No, no, no. It was because? a good gig. Yeah, it was a good gig. Yeah. It was in Fort Myers, Florida, and it, and my dad would take them boating. My dad had a fishing boat and. He would call me up. And go, Mike. I'm here with Tim Allen. Mike, I'm here with Jerry Seinfeld. You know, and yeah. <laughs> and um, and they liked him, uh-huh. and he loved he, he You know, his, through his friendship with Leno, and and through me, he really learned to love comedians. And, huh. You know, my dad he he died young. He had an accident. You know, and he at 72, he had a bad fall, and uh-huh. and he was dead eight days later. You know, but he was a great guy, and and, and he really through me learned to understand you know even long after i was out of comedy yeah he was friends with comedians and he loved comedians and he really understood what not only what a tough life it is but what a unique skill set it is Uh you know and and he would call me up and say you gotta see this kid you know bill hicks you yeah yeah got, i said yeah i know bill hicks dad you know what i mean <laughs> you, you know.
0: did he ever bother you to get back in it
1: no, no no he knew he knew that i was making movies and he yeah. liked that too he okay. liked to come on the sets and, and you know he liked to uh pal around with kevin costner and sure and and, and you know yeah. do, I, I had this movie with donald sutherland was in one of my movies and that made my dad happy you know Oh, that's sweet
0: man that's sweet, and you work with your brother,
1: yeah, yeah, my brother, not anymore we're doing our own things now he's my brother's actually producing the biography of Dean Warwick's life,
0: wow, but you got a good relationship with him, yeah,
1: great relationship, it just kind you know um I mean you can only work with for your big brother so many years, <laughs> you know what I mean,
0: yeah. Yeah, I'm a big brother. I don't know. It's not easy being a little brother yeah, yeah, ever. Yeah,
1: and at a certain point. Yeah. Plus, it was very conveniently timed to the time when I stopped getting work. <laughs> he, he was like, hey, man, what, what's your next movie? Because if not, I'm I'm on my own. <laughs> you know, and he's gone on. He's done very well, actually. And
0: so have you, man. I really appreciate you talking to me, buddy. I'm really glad I came. It was great. Thanks, yeah. Mike. That was pretty cool. That was it. That was me and Mike Binder. It was a uh, very exciting talk to Mike. Got a lot of respect for that guy for a lot of reasons. Go to WTFpod.com for all your WTFpod needs. Check out the merch. Check out the posters. Check out, you know, the. you can get on the mailing list. You can comment there through Facebook, so I know who you are. So you're not just a maggot among maggots. Yeah, don't want to be one of those people. Cyber maggots. Internet's full of them. the bed, 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 the